Hey, everybody. My name is Drew Baker. Welcome to The Brutal Podcast. On this show, I interview progressive winemakers, chefs, farmers, and scientists at my kitchen table or via Zoom. Uh, On today's episode, I'm interviewing Joseph Brinkley, biodynamic farmer and viticulture consultant from Floyd, Virginia, in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. Uh, Joseph has managed the largest certified organic vineyards in the country and also consults people like me to help them better understand their farm as a living, breathing organism. Uh, The farm is a complex system of interacting substances and processes, much like a human body, and this is uh, a fundamental understanding and starting point of biodynamics. So, all right, table set. Joseph Brinkley's in the house. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to be here. Good to see you, Drew. Yeah, absolutely. Good to see you, too. How are uh, things in Floyd? White. Really, really white. There's snow all around and it just keeps snowing. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's awesome. We're in the middle of it too. How much would you say you have on the ground at this point? Um, I don't know, maybe five-ish inches. You know, we got a decent uh, amount the other day. Some of it melted and a little bit more last night. So yeah, kids are happy. I'm happy. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. We're watching similar situation. Um so uh, for our listeners, we've known each other for about four years. Uh, we first started working together shortly after uh, my family purchased the Burnt Hill Farm and wanted to approach it a bit differently uh, than we had originally approached Old Westminster Winery and how most uh, farmers in our region sort of approach a new vineyard project. And uh, we, uh, you know, got the opportunity, uh, the honor to work with you and uh, discuss how we could prepare the land, sort of build a foundation for the future before we just started throwing vines in the ground. And, uh, you know, that was sort of the impetus of our relationship. Um, and I'm excited to sort of talk about cover crops and biodynamics and, and biodiversity with you. Um, but before we get into that, uh, for our listeners, I was hoping you could uh, take a minute and uh, introduce yourself. Kind of tell us, y- you get to give us the Reader's Digest version of whatever version of you you want to tell. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, right. Well, you got my name right, Joseph Brinkley. Um, yeah, I, I'm from the East Coast. I grew up Virginia Beach. Um, did a did a degree uh, in, in economics out of Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, was working there at the Fed a little bit in Richmond and decided I didn't really want to be in a cubicle and staring at a screen. I liked what the work was was promoting. We were looking at income disparity and lending disparity and such, but um, but my my job was kind of staring at a screen all day. And I, I really felt like I wanted to be outside and, and do something a little more impactful um, as far as, I guess, the life goes, um, living parts of life, you know? So uh, I ended up getting a horticulture degree then from Virginia Tech um, and simultaneously. So since I was living in Christiansburg at the time, I learned about this thing called biodynamics from one book leading to another and, and found this farm, which was in Woolwine at the time, uh, about an hour from where I was living. And um, it was claiming that it it had this ability to heal the earth. And so that was really attractive to me. The the degree I was pursuing was horticultural therapy. So I had done some physical therapy work in the past and I was trying to kind of marry the two. And I thought, you know, working, working with plants and as a therapeutic means was really impactful, but I, I was looking for something more kind of, um, 
to the root, if you will, of the problem. And, and so working with individuals one-on-one certainly has its benefits, but I, um, I was really looking to see, could we impact things in a, in a bigger kind of way? And so I learned about this biodynamic thing. I started learning from Hugh Courtney, how to make the preparations, how to use the biodynamic preparations. And so that really began the, the journey into biodynamics. And then from there, I wanted to, you know, you can, you can learn what you can from a book, but farming, you definitely need to learn it by doing it. Um, so I ended up going to Kentucky, working with some amazing people there, an incredible farmer, um, Paul Bella um, and his wife, Robin, and they had a lovely family. So it was like a CSA farm, mixed vegetable, and uh, they had some animals. It's really, I just fell in love with that life. And so I figured that's what I would be doing. I was going to, you know, try to save up a little bit of money, start my own little CSA deal and and just be like a poor farmer the rest of my life. And um, I guess that wasn't the plan. Uh, then I got a call to go to Napa and work for a, a biodynamic winery there. And so I decided that was worth a try. Um, and so I didn't know anything about viticulture. I didn't even drink wine, um, but I knew something about biodynamics and soil and compost and such. So that began my beginning that was the beginning of the the biodynamic world and into viticulture and then from from there i have worked with many others since and still still seem to find myself on the on the vineyard side of things (laughs) and here i am talking to you yeah awesome excited to be chatting with you so um thank you for that overview you mentioned a couple things that just kind of stood out for me and 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 i'm and i'm thinking you know for our listeners that might not be um uh, have an in, in-depth knowledge of things like uh, biodynamics, and you mentioned the preparations. Um, I, I, I was hoping, you know, you could kind of give us the 101, just kind of break that down for us. Like, what does biodynamics mean to you first? And then, um, and then secondly, you mentioned these preparations. Maybe you could touch on that. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming we have like a five part series here then. Yeah, that, right, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. We're getting to? <laughs> <laughs> so in yeah, a we'll, nutshell, we'll the, um, so, you okay, know, so yep, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the, you know, I like to, I guess an analogy that seems to work for me is if we look at, at medicine and we look at kind of the Western approach to medicine and, and the Eastern approach to medicine. And often we look, maybe on the Western side, we're looking more of like a, a symptomatic approach, right? We're, we're looking at this, this, this is the symptom, how do we treat that? And then we move on. On the Eastern side, it's, it's more of a kind of a holistic view of the human being as a, a whole entity. And, you know, we, we, we wanna understand when, when something's going on, um, a, a dis-ease of sorts. We were trying to kind of understand what the imbalance is leading to that. And so, you know, there's questions about sleeping and eating and stress and just the whole life as, as, a, as a whole. Um, and so I think farming can be seen similarly. So if we, if we take the, the more what is currently, we would refer to as like a conventional or, or even the organic approach is, is more you know, we have this kind of NPK philosophy, the, the vine or the plant needs nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and X amounts, and then the micros and, and whatnot. And um, how do we get the plant those kind of parts to make up the whole? Whereas in the, the biodynamic sphere, we're really looking at the, the farm wholeness of the farm itself. And so 
if we can create a, a farm system that we envision as a, an entity in, in and of itself, kind of it has its own life form, life systems. And so how can we, how can we manage a farm such that the soil is healthy, the, the, all the animals, whether they're the domesticated ones or the wild ones are healthy and, and kind of in balance where the water courses stream through, you know, so we look at the farm as kind of an overarching wholeness. And then we're really trying to kind of balance all the, the parts and in this balancing and in this really um, focus on like soil life and soil health and, and, and wellness on the whole, then we're, essentially betting or hoping <laughs> that the the vines or the plants that we're growing the animals that we're caring for you know the land that we're stewarding all can come to kind of a balance and, and be healthy and, and provide a um, a decent return because at the end of the day you know it's an economic proposition as well so um so i think it's it's really a kind of a shift in the paradigm it's a a difference in the practices are the things that get kind of spoken of mostly but i really think it's more the the approach you know how do we view the the life and the and our interaction with it i think you know for for example in the organic realm or even the conventional realm, we, we see, say we have a pest. We say, okay, um, first kind of question is like, how do we eradicate that pest, right? <laughs> um, and maybe the biodynamic approach would to, to see that same pest um, and kind of ask the question, what is the imbalance? Why is the pest there? So, so maybe powdery mildew, um, you know, in the vineyard world, powdery mildew is pretty big pest. And so, the, the question becomes, did we do something either this year or in the past years to either restrict the airflow, provide too much, you know, excess water, excess nitrogen, the, the mildew, the, the pest that in our view is there basically to take the excess of something that we've missed in our management. So there's, there's an imbalance being created and the, the pest is really just a manifestation of that imbalance. Um, so, so that, that approach is a bit different. Cool. Yeah. So, um, that, that, that was a really great summary. I appreciate that. You mentioned sort of how, uh, the conventional and even organic approach is to treat symptoms and, um, the biodynamic approach, just speaking in broad terms is to, um, you know, assess those symptoms and sort of step back and ask a question and say, like, how can we work in tandem with nature to create balance, not just eradicate this thing that is, that is giving me trouble. Um, and I can't help but think that like, even in that situation, there, it you know, the human beings play a really cool role. Like, even as you view the farm as like its own entity, like the human, the farmer has like this really unique ability to step back and to view that farm and to ask those questions and to not do nothing. Um, and also simultaneously not to steamroll nature, but to kind of like work alongside of it to, um, you know, to cultivate something that is, you know, self-sustaining and to your point yields a crop that, you know, wouldn't otherwise be there without that human's vision. So it's kind of a cool, like balancing act for sure. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're kind of in the middle, you know, it's, it's really the, the will power and the consciousness of the farmer, those interacting with the land that help to drive and guide it, you know, if, especially on the East coast, if you leave it, the land to, to its own devices, if you will, or just, I mean, a forest returns eventually, right? You know, so, I mean, the land is kind of in, in this 
balance between cleared and reforesting. And, you know, if we take forest as kind of our, our guide, I mean, the forest continually perpetuates itself through, you know, the, the diversity of all the life forms there working together. Um, we don't bring bags of urea to fertilize the forest. So it continues, you know, and, and so we're, we kind of try to see that as a bit of a model. How can we create a system that at some point becomes somewhat self-sustaining? I mean, to, to be clear, like we are farming, farming in, in and of itself is exploitative, right? We're going to go to the land and we're going to take off that land. But if we can do this in such a way that we're also giving, you know, so it's a giving and taking, I think, you know, if, if we, if we just kind of frame it as a relationship, right. And a long-term relationship, you know, and, and the, there's never kind of a 50, 50 give and take in a long-term relationship, right. At some point, one partner is giving more at some point, the other, another, the other partner is, is giving more. Um, but hopefully that balance is through time where it's not one person always giving one person always taking the most. And so in this way, you know, this is where like that, the idea of sustainable comes like if you kind of identified your relationship as sustainable, I mean, I guess that's better than ending, but <laughs> that's not excellent. <laughs> right. So then we move into this sphere of, of regenerative. Right. And so really that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, we're trying to um, kind of be in partnership with our land and, and with the farm and with the wholeness of our, our, our plot of land or plots, whatever we're stewarding in such a way that we have a long-term kind of regenerative relationship that we're giving as we're taking, but it's a give and take. It's not just a pure giving, you know? Um, and so it is a bit of a balance because nature certainly is not as interested in our yields as we are. <laughs> right. I mean, the grapevine doesn't necessarily want to be in a kind of a plane between wires and posts. And, you know, if, if it, did what it wanted it'd be climbing trees and it'd be a bit more wild so so it is finding that balance between like the the farm needs and the the needs of the the plants and animals and such cool so um you mentioned balance uh regeneration uh give and take um can you help uh us understand some ways uh, that a a farmer a land steward uh with your uh view might give to the land um, before they take? Yeah, yeah, you know, and I, I think that's a, a really good point and, and a thing to be aware of because there, there's so many ways we can give. I think the the first way that's probably overlooked is just the attention, right? I mean, you have children, I have children, right? Oftentimes the, the child I mean, like my boy loves Legos, but he'd rather me play with him with the Legos he currently has and just constantly be giving Legos to play alone. You know what I mean? Like there's, so the, the attention, our, in some ways, a gift is attention, right? Being attentive to the land, being attentive to the plants and animals that, that we have chosen to, to put in our, you know, domain, if you will. Um, but as far as like kind of the material giving, there, there's certainly, I mean, I think cover crops are amazing. You know, so we can we can help to grow soil and grow soil carbon and grow organic matter because of the magic of photosynthesis, right? I mean, the sun freely gives of itself every day, or at least most days. Some days are a little cloudy, but um, you know, we have we have this incredible relationship that the plants and the sun have have created through time. You know, the, and 
and through that photosynthetic synthetic capacity, now the plants are adding uh, root exudates and adding life and food sources to the soil life. And so as we diversify the plant life on our land, we are also adding soil life and carbon, you know, and I mean, today we, we've got this huge imbalance, the right carbon that is incredibly beneficial in the ground is now in the atmosphere where it's not beneficial to, you know, at the level it is. And so simply continuing to propagate and add photosynthetic capacity to the, to the land. So that's one way we can give. Um, I think it's really quite amazing how we can um, use the relationship of ruminants and grasses and forbs, right? So whether it's cows or sheep, or if we can start to, to kind of pair these ruminating creatures with the things that we're planting, because they have this amazing relationship as well, like the sun and plants, also the plants and the, the ruminants have. So, you know, we can drive our tractor and, and mow kind of like a grass forb clover maybe mix you know and it'll regrow but once we add animals on there the regrowth is different from just them eating it from their grazing then they're fertilizing you know i mean i love my tractor but diesel is not adding fertility i can tell you that right now <laughs> but the the animals themselves are clearly right just all they're doing is metabolizing you know um, so there's another way to, to kind of increase the life and give back to the land. Um, we certainly can make uh, good quality compost. That compost then is another way to start adding fertility and, and adding because we know we're going to take. And so I, I prefer, and you know, we've had these conversations before, like you said, as you were starting your project there um, at Burnt Hill to, to, you know, before we go on and just start taking right away, we start adding, right? So we add some cover crops, we add some compost, we start maybe getting animals involved, whatever we can do. Um, and I don't think there's like a rigid prescription. You know, that's one of the things that I, I love about kind of th this work and working with different farms and different people is that you, you kind of see what the system allows and, and what you have disposal, you know, what what you're able to to do, and then you kind of work within it to, to give back. So um, I think those are some relatively simple ways, you know. Yeah, for sure. I love it. Um, and even uh, how, you know, simply you broke that down, being mindful of your carbon cover cropping, you mentioned compost, uh, animal integration, um, just to like mince those uh, apart just a teeny bit um, to kind of like demonstrate for our listeners and hopefully teach them something about how while these things are simple, uh, they, you know, do require attention and thought and aren't easy. Um, you know, for cover crops, for example, help us understand, you know, I, I think a lot of people, um, you know, myself for much of my life included, see, um, you know, see a lawn or uh, see a field, you know, with a particular crop that can be identified and it's very uniform. And we think, okay, that's, that's cover crop. There's a crop and it's covering the ground. Um, but I think um, uh, I, I would venture to guess that when you talk about cover crops and being intentional with them and using them as a tool to build biodiversity, you aren't just picturing a beautifully manicured lawn or, or any particular haphazard crop covering the ground, right? Like there's thought that goes into that. Can you, can you like maybe talk for a second about like different types of cover crops and, and how they work together and, and maybe why it's important to not just have like a lawn with one particular strain of fescue, for example? 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think we, we can only do what we know. And so we should at some point just give ourselves a little space and not be too hard on ourselves. So I think, you know, uh, uh, a monoculture is better than bare soil. Um, however, yeah, there's there's so much that, that can be kind of... Uh, there, there's more to gain, I think, from the soil and from our interaction from a, a multitude of species. You know, it's like a community, right? If if we're all the same, we all look the same, we all think the same, we all talk the same. The community, I mean, it it it, it has some, uh, you know, there's some some value, I guess, to it. But but we don't have the same richness, right? We find even in in our human sphere an incredible amount of richness through diversity, and so I think it's kind of the same in in the in in a cover crop say situation where yeah one strain of fescue i mean grasses are amazing at adding organic matter but when we start adding say some clover some sort of legume to it then we're then we start to bring in a you know a different symbiosis with different life in the soil different bacteria and then we're adding a, a bit of nitrogen there that maybe the the grass relationship doesn't have. And then, you know, I mean, the, the most hated, I guess, or the, like the indicative weed of all time, you know, on all the herbicides is the dandelion, which I think is one of the most amazing plants ever. Right. So with this dandelion, you have this incredible taproot or even some of the docks, you know, they have an incredible, incredible taproot that can go down, um, kind of break up some clay. They're, they're bringing up all kinds of minerals and, and nutrition really from the subsoil from deeper parts that other plants can't access bringing them up there i mean you always find lots of worms you know there's another interaction there with with say dandelions or these things that we we consider weeds um right and and they have a, a capacity to kind of get different minerals and different levels of minerals than than these other maybe cultivated plants so there's, there's also something to be said for the leaf form, right? So again, if we're trying to, in some ways, we're trying to like farm the sun, right? We're really trying to intercept, I guess, and use the maximum amount of sun ray, sunshine that we can. And, and as light is coming in different planes, when you have different leaf forms, a blade of grass or... I mean, not that all grass blades are the same, but, you know, generally speaking, a blade of grass is clearly different than like a, a rounded kind of legume leaf would be, you know, say a clover or something. And then, and then if you can imagine even like the dandelion with its serrated kind of hugs, the ground comes out from the base, this like rosette. So all these different leaf forms are intercepting different, different light, you know, that otherwise would, would not be caught, but that light then being intercepted then allows for more photosynthesis, which then allows for more soil life, root growth, you know, and then, and then the above ground part as well, the flowers. So we're talking about leaf blades and root and such and the life in the soil, but each one of these plants has a different flower, has a different flowering time, has a different flower form, those different flower forms now are feeding, you know, different bees, different wasps, different flies, <laughs> different all kinds of, you know, what we would say, quote, beneficial insects and such. So we have, it's, it's really just kind of this whole world of life above and below ground that maybe we don't even take the time to notice or consider um, that is really, again, helping to kind of enliven enliven the farm um, at, a, at a different way. So really, I think the, the more, 
I mean, I'm sure there, there's certainly a, a, a point where you get too much. You can have, you know, there's, there's a nice balance of not one plant, but, you know, maybe 50 plants in a certain area is maybe too much. But at some point, you're really looking to increase this diversity because um, they're, they're, they're all bringing some, you know, other quality. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, so how can we use, I, I guess, let's kind of, another thing that you mentioned when you were kind of giving your uh, previous overview that I wanted to talk about in addition to cover crops, uh, and it's related, obviously this is all related, is um, carbon sequestration. Um, can you, uh, you know, again, this is a, a one-part uh, interview, right? And I know we could talk about this for hours, but um, could you give us a, a quick overview of like, what is carbon sequestration? Obviously, we all know, uh, you know, there's a lot of carbon in the environment. That's bad. There's not enough carbon in the ground. That's bad. We need to get carbon out of the environment into the ground. Like, how does that actually work? And how, as a farmer, as a land steward, um, a human responsible for a plot of land, how can we sort of give thought to and, um, you know, play a role in, in contributing to that process uh, uh, in, instead of, uh, you know, continuing down a, down a bad path? Right. Yeah. I think I would, I would ask that we first change the language even. Um, I think there, there's a lot of power in the language we use. And, and this came to my attention by a good friend of mine, Bruno Falador, who's, who's a, a Brazilian, uh, really into poetry, amazing compost maker. And, and really he, he brought it to my attention. And in and, and Portuguese, the sequestration is really like a, a kidnapping, right? It's super violent. And so all of a sudden we're applying this this term of that has this kind of violent connotation that we want to basically take this stuff and lock it away right we're trying to lock it down and not allow it to be what it is and 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 really i think that it, it may seem just semantic but really i think it, it it affects how we view life and how we view our interaction with it and so um we're not trying to lock it away because carbon is like fundamental to all life, right? It, it's the structure for you and me. It's a structure for plants and animals. And so it's a, it's an amazing, beautiful thing. It's just in the wrong place, you know? And so I like to say reintegration. So if we can, cause that's what we're really trying to do, right? We're really trying to take carbon that was in the ground that because maybe we were not quite as, long-sighted as we could be as beings we decided to mine it all and burn it to you know power our video games or whatever um or even to get to work you know whatever um not to judge us but we, we certainly took carbon that was in the atmosphere went to the ground then we started burning 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 right now it's back in the atmosphere so what we're really trying to do is in my mind reintegrate that carbon that was in the ground now in the atmosphere back into the ground where it can play a role it's not being locked away it's active you know it, it's a it's an amazing uh, benefit to soil and to life and to water filtration and to, you know, the list continues and goes on and on. But what we really want is to bring it out of the atmosphere and put it back into the earth where it can be of benefit for, for plant growth and for life in general. And so what we're looking at is how can we get this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere into the ground? And the most amazing thing about that is that we've been given this without doing anything, right? The plants do that. 
plants, whether they're annuals. I mean, the perennials are amazing at it, you know, perennial grasses and perennial trees and shrubs. I mean, that's what creates the the structure, you know? Um, and so I think, I think as farmers, you know, we, we can all conserve, right? We could all like buy electric cars, I guess use solar panels, you know, we could certainly all reduce the amount of fossil fuels that we're consuming. But even if we did, I'm not sure that that would, that wouldn't necessarily turn the tide as much as it needs to be, right? The carbon in the atmosphere is already there, right? And so what I think is amazing about the industry as far as farming and agriculture goes is that we actually have the key, we have the power to reverse it, Right. And so there's not very many industries that can do that. We can all conserve, but very few industries and um, steps we can take can actually take the carbon from where it doesn't belong and put it back to where it does at these levels. Clearly, carbon does belong in the atmosphere, but not at these levels where, where it's so harmful to, to life. Um, and so so really, I think what it is, is about how can we steward land to continue to contribute to the photosynthetic, easy, huh? photosynthetic capacity of that land. So that means continuing to plant diverse crops, maybe stewarding more perennials. You know, how can we really, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what I'm saying is that we're increasing photosynthetic capacity on land to pull carbon from the air into the soil where it's incredibly beneficial. It's super beneficial. It helps with, you know, it can help uh, mitigate disease. It can help with the water purification, water table. I mean, we have a water crisis at the moment, right? We have like a air crisis at the moment. We have, we have just crises <laughs> all around, you know, and, and, um, and, but we have also kind of some, some tools to, to help mitigate and to help shift this. So, so it sounds like the farmer or the land steward, if you will, has an opportunity to be a superhero and to really, uh, you know, uniquely solve some of these problems, right? Like from an act, like we have an actual playbook that can fix these problems, not just mitigate them and sustain them, but actually fix them. It's true. There was, you know, there was a time when, um, when classes maybe had a, had a different, uh, value in society but you know the the farm the farmer class was in like the the priesthood right that was and and i'm not trying to get religious here and i'm sure there's all kinds of people that cringe at the thought but but the the priest being you know one of the kind of the the leading spiritual guides of that community or that time and place you know and clearly things have shifted and and that's all good i'm sure but i'm saying that the 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 societal perception, you know, of what a farmer is or what a farmer contributes has certainly reduced and reduced and reduced through the ages. And, and now I think it's, you know, it's, it's um, pertinent and, and it's timely that, that we certainly have the capacity to, um, to, to really help shift things in a super positive way. Cool. Yeah. So um, a lot of a lot of farming has been mechanized, and the human has been removed from it. The heart, the soul, the love—that uh, unique capacity to bring vision to a farm has really, you know, ha has zoomed out such that you know there there isn't much attention being given to a particular plot of land. So it sounds like maybe that's a good place to start. Would be to um, you know elevate 
um, you know, farmers who uh, are are caring for land the right way, and to uh, not just view them as you know people who have a job that are uh, you know trying to put food on the table, but um, are simultaneously uh, you know contributing to uh, you know a reversal or uh, of of a longstanding uh, you know carbon problem and integrating it into the earth to create uh, you know a carbon solution, which is really cool. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Farming gets a really bad rap, you know, um, being on the West coast, it was kind of this and, and maybe the East coast too, you know, it's like, uh, farm farmers are taking all the water and polluting the land and treating all the people, you know, I mean, there's, there's just all this negativeness around farming and farmers. And I, I just think that's a bit unfair, um, and not accurate either. You know, I think that we, we really, um, we've kind of, yeah, I think it's it's time to shift the perception and, and um, there, it doesn't have to be at odds. You know, it's not like that environmentalism and conservationism is anti-agriculturalism, <laughs> you know? I mean, at some point, agriculturalists are the stewards of the land and and it, it, it is in all of our favor to do that the best we can. And, and I don't think farmers necessarily wake up every day like, how am I gonna make this piece of land worse? you know um and and so i think sometimes it's just a a, a bad rap and and, yeah, and it's it, hard to know right if you've so never easy. lived in a farm it's so easy to look around and and to just point at all the problems but uh you know i, I yeah i think working together to come up with solutions is is uh, more productive um what do you and and you had mentioned sort of the bad rap that that farmers get on the east coast for one set of situations you know it rains a lot you know uh there's too much uh you know fungicides and herbicides and bad chemicals being sprayed and then out on the west coast right like it's ideal farming conditions you know however uh you know there's this sort of you know water exploitation reputation and this you know all these vegetables that are being you know grown and harvested and exported around the world when you know really they're 99% water and you know that's water that shouldn't be leaving and you know it, it's easy to point out these problems um but i think it's you know much more important for us to you know continually acknowledge that there is some element of truth in those criticisms um and 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 you know take it to heart and sort of reevaluate you know what we do and where we do it. Um, so with that, I just kind of wanted to ask you, uh, you know, what I think is a is a relevant uh, question you know, to to me and and to the Burnt Hill Project and you know what you're doing with um, you know uh, consulting in viticulture on the East Coast, uh, growing grapes on the West Coast. What is in your mind, um, you know, what do you can you speak to um, growing grapes, making wine on the East coast, for example, what, what are your kind of thoughts on that, on that proposition? And how does that all fit with biodynamics? Can it be done? How should we approach it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, um, you know, if, if you're up for the biggest challenge, um, then, then go for it. You know, I mean, yeah, the, the especially vinifera, right. Growing vinifera on the East coast comes with a, a whole range of concerns, you know, from, from pests, whether they're insect or mildews or other, um, fungal issues. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's challenges in all agriculture, no matter what crop you grow and where you grow it. But, um, but growing vinifera on, on the East coast certainly becomes a challenge, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's been remarkable to see over the last, what, couple decades, maybe even more now, um, 
the advances, you know, you see people really, really moving forward. Um, there's lots of opportunities as far as, um, ways to, to kind of mitigate or reduce, you know, the, the, um, the pressure, reduce the, the kind of the heavy chemical load that's needed, you know, or that was presumed to be needed. Maybe I should say, I mean, you've done an amazing job, right? You're SIP certified. I mean, it's incredible. You know, it's not like you maybe don't ever spray anything. And I think that's just like an unreasonable proposition to start with, but really like the, 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 the challenge is faced with, you know, a, a strong desire and creativity and, and we continue to overcome. Um, so, you know, I think it is certainly, it's certainly a challenge, um, but I think it's certainly reasonable and, and with, within grasp. And then if we move into like hybrids or natives, then, you know, I think it's even that more, um, that more doable, right? Because they, they certainly have the kind of the resistance they've grown up with a lot of these issues and, and they can figure out a way to, to work, to work with it, you know? And so, I think it's it's amazing to see how many people are you know are still planting vines and planting more vines and and really even moving into this sphere of like how can we reduce or even eliminate some of the harsher chemicals that we're using you know the fungicides and such like that so um yeah i mean you've done incredible work already you know in these last few years with your your new project there and and i see other people you know moving forward in that way too so i think it's it's really kind of exciting to see that like you know, we, we can, we can still do this even in a challenging, humid hurricane filled, you know, summer and fall and <laughs> hot yeah. and humid and raining. And yeah, I mean, but there's some other, I mean, right. There's, there's wine growing regions in Europe as well that aren't like Mediterranean. I mean, it's not just the Mediterranean that does well. So. Yeah. And sometimes the most interesting wines come from uh, tougher environments, but so what in my notes, uh, when I asked this uh, sort of question and I was kind of thinking on it, you, you, you touched on, um, you know, what I was hoping to tease out actually. And, um, you know, so just for our listeners, you mentioned growing vinifera. Uh, it's challenging. Uh, vinifera are grapevines of European descent. They're non-native to this continent. Um, humans have brought these plants from Europe to North America, planted them everywhere. And, uh, you know, vinifera plants, for example, Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, all of the, uh, you know, varieties that, that you know and are familiar with, you see on, you know, the supermarket shelf. Uh, you know, these are native to Europe. We're growing them in North America. They are not particularly resilient plants. Um, we have challenging weather here, hot summers, really cold winters, uh, lots of rain, um, you know, it, and, and they're tender right? So they require a fair amount of inputs. And then uh, Joseph, you mentioned hybrids or natives, um, you know, hybrids, uh, our, our mutual friend, Lucy Morton is, uh, similarly trying to challenge the semantics of that and calling them, you know, multi-heritage, uh, just because <laughs> hybrid kind of has this, like, is that GMO or is that bad? Yeah, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, it, it's an important conversation and these are, are great vine varieties that have, um, some biological roots in this region, right? Like they've, they, they've, they've either been, uh, they've either existed here on their own or they've been bred using, uh, uh, you know, genetics that have been here on their own long before we have growing on the edge of our forests and have thus evolved to have some natural, uh, defense mechanisms against, you know, really cold weather, uh, against, um, insects and uh, pests and mildews that we have in this region. So if we sort of lean into and embrace 
um, these varieties and sort of, the, frankly, the unique styles of wines that they create. If we if we if we sort of raise our acceptance or, or broaden our spectrum of acceptance of wine style, then all of the sudden, I think we can really redefine what you know sustainability looks like in a vineyard operation. Um, and that doesn't mean vinifera is bad. We grow it. Everyone grows it. That's okay. Um, but I think just like we look at cover crops and the need for that biodiversity to be important, I think when you're growing grapes, you know, a big field of nothing but vinifera is maybe not ideal either. And that's kind of something that I've, you know, you and I have talked about this at, <laughs> at length. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a really tough, delicate balance. Um, and, uh, but it's something that I think every farmer, like you have to wrestle with that. Like if you're not wrestling it with it, then you're just ignoring the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the beauties about wine, I feel like, because we're really, you know, we're, we're growing a product that then becomes something totally different. You know, we're, we're not growing grapes for the fresh eating market when grapes are lovely to eat fresh, but I'm just saying that what, what we're talking about here is then, so we're, we're growing this agricultural product, but that we're really looking for how it will transform through time, you know, so the whole vinification of it then creates something completely different. And, and that's what's so beautiful in some ways about it, because, you know, you can, I mean, I guess, what else would be similar? I guess cheese, right? You know, it's not like a cheese is a cheese no matter what, right? I mean, there's incredible cheeses, but they come from a certain place. And in this way, I guess what I'm trying to say is that even, even like you said, Cabernet, you know, not every cab is the same, right? You can go to a supermarket or even to a wine shop and get a $5 to a $500 cab. And they don't all taste the same. They're not all from the same place. They have different qualities. There's so much that they can offer. And I guess within that is the kind of the story of where they've been, how they were farmed, you know, and you can kind of that idea of tasting the place in a sense, right? You can really taste that it came from a, a hot region or a cooler climate or, you know, how it was vinified and how it was treated through all the different stages and such. And so with wine, I think that too, it, you know, like, like you said, it on the East coast, it seems that there's more of a, more of an impact of vintage. Vintage actually means something because, you know, you have a year like 17 versus 18 versus 19, right? I mean, these incredibly different, different years as far as rain and coldness and and just all the things that are presented where, you know, sometimes on, on the West coast and, you know, we have some amazing places to grow grapes, but it's like, I mean, it's, it's amazing every year, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, we got a little less rain or a little bit more fire, but, but, um, the, the vintage is a little bit slightly different as far as the impact, I think. Um, and so it, I think it's really cool on the East coast that you have these really almost extreme vintage variations. Um, and then, like you said, in some ways, you know, I think, I think what's amazing about this system being this capitalist system and it has all kinds of implications negative and problems clearly however we as consumers have the power right and that's the thing that i don't know that we always recognize but that we should recognize and that we should take advantage of because through the power of the dollar we what we choose to purchase is really voting for that product and that seller of that product right and so if we want to see a change if we want farming practices to change if we want to see what did you call them multi-heritage varieties being grown more you know then we buy them right and the more we buy them the more that 
shows that there's a home for them. And so what we don't buy starts to fade away because if you're not buying it, it can't continue, right? And so we really have an amazing, amazing part to play as consumers. So it's like, you don't have to have a couple hundred acres as a farmer to make an impact in this world, right? You're not even in the farming world. Not, you know, if, if you really want to support regenerative farming, organic, biodynamic, whatever it is, then you can plant some things on your, you know, on your flat in a pot or in your front yard or side yard or whatever. But if you don't even have a yard, all of us can go to from from the power we have as consumers, we can continue to support practices, products, people that we totally believe in and and we are voting for with that the power of the purchase. You know, that's, that's a um, really so cool I think that's thought, really so. amazing. Yeah. So consume like it matters, right? You're going to, you're going to consume. Right. <laughs> you are. That's right. If you want farming to change, if you want everything that we're talking about to become a reality, then at some point, you know, you can't talk about it. You got to be about it and seek out someone that it aligns with, with you on it and, uh, you know, and support them and not support, you know, fill in the blank that is to your mind, you know, contributing to the problem. That's uh, that's a really cool, right. really cool thought. Uh, so Joseph, you know, uh, I've, I've told you many times that, you know, I really love the way that, that you think and, um, you know, always cherish the opportunity to kind of have a good conversation and catch up with you. And uh, certainly, um, you know, I, I consider you uh, a mentor uh, in, in, in many ways. Um, so, but, but uh, the next question I want to ask you is, um, you know, do you have uh, any, any mentors? I, I know, I know you do, but tell us about them and, um, you know, the value of having a mentor and, and sort of seeking out, um, you know, people that can kind of help us on our personal growth journeys. Uh, you know, and I know that can be a big question about life, um, you know, and then also really specific to, you know, farming and to our craft as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a really great question. I, I have a long list of them, um, you know, because, because we, we can learn what we can through our own observation, you know, through our own reading, through our own study. Um, but it really helps us along the way in life to, to, I guess, to, um, to take the time to listen to those who came before us, you know, and, and learn from their learnings. Um, and, and so I guess I would start with, uh, with the late Hugh Courtney, you know, he, he taught me a lot about biodynamics, um, he was really, really insightful in, in the preparation making and the usage and just really in, in life. He, he studied many years, a lot of Steiner's writings and um, really had a view for kind of the, the, the stars and the planets and such. And, and really just his, his life experience, you know, so living at his farm and working with him off and on for many years, it was really helpful to understand kind of our place and how we can apply these these biodynamic preparations and how we can really change a, a plot of land um and so and even before hugh was a good friend of his Bo, who's also passed but Bo johnson was really the one that introduced me to hugh so i'd say Bo first got me thinking i mean he would come he was like, he had crazy hair and he never wore anything but like sweatpants and a t-shirt, you know, like the, you saw him on the street, you'd think he was like some crazy bum, but man, that guy had some incredible knowledge and he was always bringing these ideas of like different economic possibilities, you know, different ways of agriculture. I mean, he opened my eyes to just like 
non-conventional things in all aspects of life, really. And and that was really, you know, sometimes we we get into this, I guess it goes back to the beginning of the conversation here. We get into these paradigms and we think that like whatever we see or however we see the world as working is the only way it can work. And and it's really helpful, I think, to to be challenged because that's not the case, <laughs> right? I mean, when we look into the wider world, like the whole world, there's amazing ways of people living, right? That do things completely different than we do. And it's not because they're crazy or stupid or wrong. It's because it also works. You know, there's like a lot of ways to, to approach life and we can really learn a lot, I think, from, from doing things a bit different. And, and I think it, it really just takes a what what I used to tell clients, I guess, when I'd start working with them is that you don't have to believe in any of this stuff. All I'm asking is that you, for for a moment, just suspend the disbelief, right? Just can you have the capacity to just hold off on the judgment because it sounds crazy and just like, let's take a few steps through and then see. And if it's not working and you're still not into it, then that's fine. But like, so I think it, sometimes we get so stuck in our own way in our own head and our own, like, I don't know, feeling of this is the way it's supposed to be that it's hard for us to then kind of accept the the beauty and the wonder of life that, that it, it can be so different. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, really amazing to, to just be able to step outside of ourselves a little bit and, and think of the, the possibility because, because life is really, really bountiful and, and, and there's so much mystery that I think that's part of the, the beauty of it. You know, it's like, if we can, we can put on like a childlike kind of lens again and, 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 you know, be amazed and wonder, <laughs> you know, it's the wonderment that can really bring a lot of lessons and learning. Um, Yeah, that's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing. Um, and uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, so for our listeners that, um, you know, are, are uh, sort of interested or, or, or you know, maybe have, um, you know, sort of caught interest in, in this conversation, uh, ideas that you've shared, um, how can uh, someone, uh, you know, uh, connect with you or, uh, you know, learn more about this whole, uh, you know, biodynamics and, and, uh, you know, farm organism conversation. Yeah, well, um, I guess biodynamics, there's a lot out there in the world, you know, there's, there's some great books that I would recommend. Um, there's a ton of websites. I would just definitely give the caveat. You got to be careful what you read on the internet. You know, it's not a, <laughs> it's not always right. Um, but the biodynamic world hey, starts to hate, get right? deeper and deeper, you know, so uh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You know, and then, um, yeah, I guess there's a, there's some, there's some other things to listen to out there, you know, podcast wise, there's a bunch of articles that have come out as far as, you know, biodynamics goes and such. Um, I think a, a search would, would do, um, you know, I think we're, what are we, we're, uh, we're talking here again at the, the VVA soon. And, you know, I think there's some, some other ways to, to learn and listen and, um, you know, workshops, right? I, we, did, uh, we, we did two workshops over guess, the past couple of years. <laughs> and uh, we've that's tried. That's right. We have. We've, we've had a few planned. 
But yeah, and we've tried we've tried to do even more, but uh, this whole pandemic is sort of getting in the way of our uh, it's thwarting our plans. Um, but at, at some point, right. hopefully, we can. Uh, you know, we've we've talked about sort of picking that mantle back up and uh, and carrying it forward. So that would be a, a cool way as well. Yeah, we're gonna do more. We are. We got to get the the timing down right. But uh, yeah, so you know, I think there's a lot of ways to learn. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, other than searching, um, I want to make it a little bit more challenging than uh, just spoon feeding it. So I'm going to say you're going to have to go look for it. <laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's a really good answer, Joseph, because um, you know this is important, and sometimes um, you know important things aren't. You, you can't, you can't spoon feed to someone. You can't make them understand. And I think at some point uh, we we are all responsible to make it a priority. Uh, you know to learn about and to solve to solve problems, right? Like if we identify something that uh, needs to be made right, um, it, 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 it's work to do that. And I think that in the process of working through it and learning um, and discovering for yourself, you kind of own it, right? Like somebody else can't own that for you. So right. yeah, I, I think that's actually, uh, you know, a, a really good, really good answer. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, Joseph, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to catch up with you and, uh, thanks for, um, you know, for chatting and, and sharing some, I think really profound thoughts. You know, we just kind of scratched the surface on like some really massive topics that could be talked about forever. Um, but, uh, you know, that's kind of the point of this podcast is to just kind of like try and pique someone's interest, just tease out some really, you know, tease out some thoughts that are, that are important and to, um, you know, challenge ourselves, uh, you know, sort of that, you know, sort of like iron sharpens iron kind of thing, you know, challenge ourselves and, and challenge listeners, um, you know, to understand, um, you know, that, Hey, maybe this is important. And, um, you know, I, I, I need to learn more about it and sort of formulate my own opinions. So that way, you know, I can play an active role, uh, you know, in wh whether it be in actual farming or just voting with our dollars to right. kind of, you know, transform this, um, you know, this, this system that, 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 that we exist in. So. Yeah, it's been cool. Great. Well, well, I appreciate your time, Drew. I love talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So uh, thanks everybody for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe on uh, whatever service you like to enjoy podcasts on. And uh, we'll continue to, uh, to, to post conversations like these with uh, interesting people like Joseph uh, in the future. So uh, Joseph, thank you so much. Really appreciate you and uh, enjoy the rest of your snow day. All right. Take care, Drew.